Hey guys, welcome back to Amstone channel. I with the one and only Larry Laparte. He is a managing par partner at Equity Management Association. He also went to uh, Harvard Business School. How are you doing, Larry? I'm good, thank you. Nice to be with you. And thank you so much. Thank you for coming. And uh, maybe just when we start, um, maybe you can give a little bit of your background just for maybe people not familiar with you, some of them. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an investment manager. Uh, I've been an investment manager my whole life, um, kind of picking stocks and picking companies. I was in the venture business from the early 80s until the 2000-ish area, 2004-ish area, uh, mm -hmm. doing mostly technology investing, a lot of it private. Um, and then since then, I, I pivoted and I'm, I'm now running a fund that focuses on sound money. Um, and uh, so in the before Bitcoin, the sound, <laughs> sound money was defined as gold and silver and gold and silver mining companies. I, I own a lot of those, um, but I've also pivoted and I have a lot of Bitcoin exposure as well. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for sound money and I believe that what's broken in society is the, is the monetary system. Got it. Yes, 100 uh, percent. So the first question would be, what do you think is going on with this uh, current economy? As we know that uh, yield continues to rise. It has been the highest since well, 15, 16 years, and uh, yield curve like still being inverted, and uh, like GDP kind of slowing down, inflation still high. What do you think is going on? Yeah, well, there's, boy, that's a long. It's, it'd be a long answer to go through it in great, great detail. But I'll give you the, the the bigger overview. I think is that you know the the zero interest rate policies that got enacted in the great financial crisis in 2008. You know, having the cost of capital be zero. I mean, the Fed held rates there from you know 08 to 2016, um, really distorted all financial asset pricing, and created what I consider to be a very big bubble, the third bubble in the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, there was a dot-com bubble, there was a U.S. housing bubble, and now we have what I call the everything bubble, which is in the dollar and sovereign credit. And so, what they did is they they created a lot of um, malinvestment, and they um, uh, they also create a lot of money, uh, as, as we can see, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet or look at the growth of M2. And so, so those things were large distortions that I believe peaked at, uh, in December of 2021. And we're now on the, the backside of that peak. In other words, I think that everything bubble is quote unquote bursting. Although there are those who argue, and I'm sympathetic to the argument, that they're going to go back to printing, print even more money, and we're going to go even higher in, in terms of a crack up boom. And, um, and for those who aren't familiar with that, the notion of that is kind of like we'll have hyperinflation and actually in hyperinflation, stock markets tend to do pretty well. They go up. Um, the one investment you can say with great certainty, in my opinion, will not do well in the next five or 10 years is uh, our bonds. I mean, I think that, that monetary debasement is very much cooked into the system. Um, the U.S. is running an unsustainable deficit. The U.S. has an enormous debt burden that it's carrying. And the interesting thing more recently, dialing in on the more recent developments, is that as interest rates have gone higher, the cost of the U.S. debt has obviously gone higher. A lot of it is short term, and so it gets rolled over quickly. And so as a result of that, you know, that, that increases the deficit, which then means they have to sell more bonds, which then means the interest rates go higher. And I think what you can see is I'm kind of describing a, a downward cycle or a, a doom loop of, um, you know, money printing, inflation, and monetary debasement. And so... So we're somewhere in all of that, but as um, you know, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, I'm sure you're aware, you know, there are swings back and forth. I mean, you've got these cross currents, right? I mean, and, and I've often said that, you know, it's, it's we're either going to have very, very high inflation or we could have an outright collapse. But it's, you know, they're trying to steer the ship so that we go right down the middle. Um, and in some ways, they'll, you know, they've done okay, but in other ways, they're failing pretty badly. And um, 
and it's going to be hard to do with this with this kind of a debt load. It's going to be extremely hard to do because you've got you know a relentless deflationary technology force and a lot of things that would suggest that you know if, if when you have a, a society that's this indebted, if you do not continue to grow the money supply and keep capital cheap, it collapses. You know you're going to have something that's going to look like kind of like the Great Depression. Um, and in turn, if you do continue to grow the money supply and keep capital, capital cheap and everything else, as we've now seen, you end up having very high inflation um, because, you know, in the, in the COVID, the response to COVID, which was very aggressive, led to a 42% growth in the money supply and, and very rapid inflation for a couple of years. Now it's, it's backed off. It's coming down a little bit, but um, I don't think it'll return to the baseline that it was at pre-COVID. And, uh, and so, you know, so it's one hell of a mess as really, <laughs> sadly, it's really the only way to describe it. It's kind of a hell of a mess. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out where it's going to go is difficult. But again, I go back to kind of first principles. And that is, I, I believe that, you know, governments will do everything they can to keep themselves in power and to keep things going forward, to keep the society running. And I think that faced with the two choices of very severe deflation or printing more money to keep things going and having some inflation come with it, I think they'll choose the latter course. And so we will have high inflation. And I expect this decade to look very much like the 1970s, you know, high inflation and not a lot of growth. Right. As we can see a few days ago or a week ago, uh, the headline CPI was reported for October. I think it came up like 3.2%, like it's down by uh, from 3.7% in September. Uh, core CPI also slightly declined, but the real inflation probably like, uh, quadruple or even more. Like if you go to the grocery store, if, you, if I go shop to Costco, I, I can see some of the items like, maybe 50, 100% more expensive than they used to be like two, three years ago. So like, what are yeah. they reporting? Well, that's right. I mean, we all know the inflation numbers are pretty, pretty cooked. I mean, there are two, there are two alternative measures. One is the Chapwood index and the other is uh, shadow government statistics. And they both show that even as low, even as high as the inflation they reported is, the real inflation was actually even higher. And of course, you know, a falling of inflation. I mean, if the inflation rate, if, you know, the stated inflation that they've got, of course, part of how they got the inflation this last print was, they said healthcare costs went down 30%. They reclassified something. It was, it's ridiculous. But, but the point is that um, even, even if inflation goes from 9% to 3%, it's not like the prices are ever going back to the old prices. I mean, everything's now at a permanently higher price. And all that going from 9 to 3 would imply is that the growth rate's not quite as fast. But prices are still going up. And yes, as you point out, I mean, I think people in their everyday lives are experiencing very rapid price increases everywhere. Uh, it's, it's just, it's kind of relentless and, and sad and it's, it's causing a lot of people, a lot of economic pain. And, um, you know, I, I, until we fix the money, it's going to be a problem. And, and sadly it, it might get, not might, it probably is going to get much worse before it gets better because the, you know, the solution, we need a global solution, which is to return to sound money. Right. Uh, do you think, uh, in the United States can happen something similar, for example, to, Argentina or Lebanon, when they continue like printed money, then they default on the debt, restructure the debt, and just continue new cycle again. I, sadly, I do. I mean, I think that's I think that's exactly what might happen here. I mean, I, I you know, I, I hesitate to say we're going to have hyperinflation here because I think before we get to that stage, there'll be policies that will stop it. But but I do think that high inflation is a very very high likelihood here, given the current macroeconomic setup, given the current government you know setup. I mean, it, it's um, I can't see. You know, the, the way to there were two there are two ways to arrest it in my view. One would be that the government suddenly got responsible. They, you know, we cut all these military bases, cut our military spending, means tested Social Security and Medicare. You know, balanced our budget, etc. And when I say that, of course, people people howl because the odds of that happening are quite low. 
Um, the other way we could stop it would be a reset to a sound money system. You know, just a, a one-time, very inflationary, you know, we're returning to a sound money system. But um, my observation of the political wind in the United States is that the odds of either of those things occurring right now are pretty low, if not zero. So sadly, that, that means in my book that we're going to have a lot more inflation in the next few years. Right. Um, and we can also see that, like, Fed continue doing QT. I think the Fed's balance sheet right now is like under eight uh, trillion dollars, but right. at the same time, uh, worldwide, everybody is basically uh, doing QE, like printing money. Well, so, that's right. Yeah, they take turns, right? So the Fed's right. not printing, but China is, and Japan is, and so on and so forth. And and I expect that QT will be reversed. I mean, you know, right now they're fighting inflation because it was the loudest and biggest problem. But you know, you watch. I mean, they're they're very they're very good at changing the narrative, and I suspect they will change the narrative. Um, you know, and, and as the economy starts to crumble and they start to have more problems in the regional banking system, et cetera, uh, you know, they, I, I can see that they will do a lot of things that will turn around, you know, this tightening that they've, they've been engaged in for a couple of years now. Right. So do you think um, they will basically say that we are won the war against inflation? Now we going back to... Oh, yeah, they've already or... started to say that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Paul Krugman, you know, terrible economist, terrible Keynesian economist said they want it. And... <laughs> And actually, others have too. I think Goolsby claimed that they'd want it, and some others have. And and there were several uh, Fed speakers saying, or, or different what noted economists making the argument that maybe the right reference rate isn't two percent. Maybe we can live with three <laughs> percent. So that's kind of a moving the goalposts. You know, right, we, oh, yeah. we got inflation from nine down to three, and you know, three is good enough for government work. It doesn't have to be two. So so yes, I mean, you can start to see that. And they, you know, you had a bunch of Fed speakers come out and say, hey, the, you know. The market has done its job for us and we're not sure we need to tighten anymore. I, mean, I think it's a very high probability. This whole interest rate raising campaign that they were on from February of 2022, I think that's over. Um, you know, I think the, the Fed has signaled it. You know, the messaging has been that way. You know, um, the Wall Street Journal, Timmy Arrows, the, the Fed whisperer, he said that they're over. And, and the futures markets are saying that too. Everyone's betting that they're not going to raise rates anymore from here. And of course, then the next step is when do they start cutting them? And you know what they'll need to do within to justify the cuts. What they will need is uh, you know economic weakness and financial distress. And you know I think that's kind of coming. A, a perfect example of that is this morning I just tweeted it out. You know Walmart just reported that they missed, and you know Walmart's down eight percent pre-market. Well, you know Walmart's one of the biggest retailers in the entire country, and they're they're sitting there saying you know hey. You know, we're gonna have a soft landing. Everything's okay. Well, not according to Walmart. Everything's not okay. You know, their their, their business is slowing down substantially. So, um, and 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 you see more of that, right? That's just the beginning of the trend. And, and I think the thing that people need to recognize, I think a lot of people overlook, is that you don't just correct. I mean, if this was the bubble, the kind of bubble that I described in terms of equity valuations and free money and you know, behavior on the part of humans and so forth from 08 to 2022 or 2021, you don't just correct that kind of bubble in a year. You know, I, I, I mean, last year we had a very bad stock market, we had a very bad bond market, and everyone kind of thought, you know, at the end of the year they, they went, whoo, you know, maybe the worst is over. And of course this year the stock market's up and it's rallied. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, well, okay, fine, you know, they're gonna, Fed did its job, we're gonna go back to low inflation, everything's gonna be okay, we're gonna have a soft landing, you know, no harm, no foul. and. My view is no. It, it's what you know. The problems that were created were so substantial that it's going to take several years to to unwind that bubble and and 
and, and economic pain across a number of different areas before it's fully unwound. I mean, you see that right now. I mean, there, were evidence, there was evidence of it earlier this year. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank failed, right? I mean, this was one of the largest banks in the country. And they got on the wrong side of the long bond market and, you know, they, they, their equity got wiped out. And, you know, reportedly there are, you know, many, many um, regional banks with commercial real estate loans that are in the same boat. You know, they, they lent against buildings that now are much less valuable than, than what they were lent, you know, than the loan that was made against them. And, you know, the, the Zoom world has got us all talking to one another from our houses, so you don't need to go into your office as much. So there's less demand for office space. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're seeing that unwind is going to take years. I mean, there are going to be a lot of buildings sold. They're going, and as those buildings get sold, I mean, at lower prices, the, those banks who made those loans, they're going to take hits. And, you know, I've seen the numbers as large as $600 billion in the regional banking system. I've seen other people estimate that half of the regional banks, if their equity were marked to market today, would actually be insolvent. So, you know, if, if that's the case, that's a big problem. I mean, if, think, of, think about half of the regional banks in the United States failing. That would be a big issue. And, uh, and of course, you know, the Fed doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. And so um, my sense is what will happen is before that's allowed to happen, they will... They will, you know, reverse their monetary policies and come back in very aggressively in the other direction uh, to try and keep things going. Right. Um, we also know that, yeah, back during uh, COVID crash, during yeah, basically from 2008 all the way to like 2022, when the interest rate was very low, a lot of people uh, bought uh, real estate. Uh, they took a very low mortgage from the banks, and now basically banks under the water because they uh, losing money on the mortgage because people. Well, mortgage. that's right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, if, if a bank funded a, a thirty-year mortgage, a three percent thirty-year mortgage, yep. a short-term paper, oh boy, look out! Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah somebody's somebody's losing a lot of money there, and and those of us, I actually didn't need to take a mortgage, but in a, in a property transaction, I did. I did take a small mortgage because I wanted the three percent, you know, and I'm mm. feeling great about it now because right. you know that's, you. that's very cheap money, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. My friend also took like a below three percent uh, like three years ago, so. That's great. Yeah. 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 And um um okay, so what do you think as we know that maybe we're going to have a recession in the near future? You know, it's hard to predict when the market is going to crash. I would not recommend anybody like short the market no, because sure fat, yeah, fat can step in like any moment and stock market can like skyrocket just like it was back during COVID crash. So what do you think um where can, where can people uh, be safe? Where can people store their let's say money? If, yeah. Uh, so, 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 my, so my view is that, you know, you want to get the big picture right. You want to get the big picture macro right. And you want to get the theme right. And you want to understand that this is going to be a very volatile time. So, you know, I'm going to make some recommendations, but I want people to understand these recommendations are volatile and, and I'm making them with a five-year time window, not tomorrow, you know, because they, they could go down tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. But, but I think in general, you know, when you have a situation where the monetary debasement is pretty clearly baked into the system and you know that they're going to ultimately print money and create more inflation, you want to own assets that benefit from that inflation. You want to own assets that can't be printed by the government, you know, and so that implies that you want to own real things, um, you know, or things of limited supply. And so commodities, you know, oil, um, you know, gas, uh, silver, gold, wheat, you know, and it's hard to invest in commodities, but the point is, you know, things are going to, it's going to be, in my view, commodities are at record lows against financial assets right now. If you go look at some of the, you know, if you Google S&P compared to GSCI, yep. 
what you'll see is it's really, you know, commodities are very, very cheap. And I think commodities are going to perform extremely well. So I would, I would aim towards commodities and commodity stocks. I saw Tavi Costa put out a chart recently on the Brazilian stock market, how cheap it was. And, and, you know, Brazil is a country that produces a lot of commodities. So, so I would aim in that direction. You know, I, I also think obviously just, just straightforward forms of money, which cannot be debased are a good choice as well. And let's go through those. There's gold, obviously there's silver as well. And there's also Bitcoin, um, all three of which have, you know, controlled supply issuance. They're not, you know, the, I mean, this isn't, you know, remember what caused this problem and what's it, what I think the biggest risk to investors today is that we have another COVID like event and they grow the money supply 42%. And so, you know, you've got, you know, a thousand dollars of savings in the bank. Suddenly, if that happens, your thousand is going to be worth 600 in terms of what it can buy. And, you know, and if that happens again, the gasoline prices that are now running in the three fours area, you know, I guess higher in California, but you know, they're going to be at the six, seven, eight area. I mean, it's just, it's relentless, this debasement. So another area to hide out in is real estate. The negative on real estate, in my opinion, is, is worse than it used to be. is just that it's taxable. Well, one, you can't move it. So, so, you know, if your state or your country decides to go in the wrong direction, you want to sell, you know, you got to sell your asset to, to get liquid and two, you know, property taxes. I mean, in this environment where all these governments, and it's not just the federal, it's state and local governments as well, they're all facing budget deficits. And so how do they deal with that? Guess what? They raise taxes. I live in Massachusetts. They just raise taxes here. And so, so that's the negative on, on real estate in my view, but, but at least they can't print real estate, you know? And so, so to me, it, it reminds me very much of the seventies and I was, I was alive and, you know, more kind of a teenager, but in the seventies and, and what was going on was, you know, people who had houses that they bought in the 60s for 40,000, they came out in 19, early 1980s and those houses were worth 400,000. I mean, they'd gone up 10x because the price of everything had gone up. I mean, the price of, of oil in that time period, you know, went up over 10x. I mean, and obviously it was because of the Arab oil embargo. But, but the point is that, you know, people need to get in their head, I think, an understanding of just how explosive this commodity bull market could be and just how bad these prices could become. I mean, I, I think people are looking at prices now and they're saying, boy, this inflation thing was really bad and we really got hurt and that really sucked. But the natural thing is, well, but it'll, you know, it'll calm down. It always does. It always has. It'll go back to normal. You know, yeah, that was awful, but it's not going to happen again. And I, I think that's kind of, you know, it'll, it'll revert to some kind of a mean, maybe a higher mean, but a mean, you know, gas will go back down to $2. My view, no. Um, structurally, because of what's happened in the economy, what's happened in the world, you know, the underinvestment in commodities, a number of other reasons. Structurally, I think we're just locked into higher inflation for quite some time. And it's, you know, it, it, it's terrible because people think it's bad right now. And it is. I think that, you know, the, I'm not trying to be a doomster, but I'm saying, I mean, sadly, just looking at it analytically, looking at the factors that come into play, I think it's going to get worse. You know, I, I think we're going to have more inflation, you know, and, and bigger waves of inflation coming. You know, until ultimately it's going to be so bad, like as you used in the example earlier, you know, you said like Argentina or Turkey or whatever, some of these other countries have gone through it. It's so bad that at some point there's going to be a demand for a monetary restructuring, just an outright demand. People are going to be screaming, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the politicians and, and the policymakers will finally realize, holy shit, we got to fix this or else, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a hyperinflation here. You know? right. So I, I, that's kind of how I see it playing out, but. It's very hard to predict, right? Because there's so many factors. So, so many variables, yep. 
uh, in 1930s, I think average uh, house was around $4,000 while the average salary was around $2,000. So basically within two years of your uh, salary, you can buy a house. And right now, average salary was like $60,000, $70,000 and average house like $450,000. So people cannot no longer afford any houses. So it, It's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely horrible. horrible. I mean, I have three kids who are in their 20s and they all are starting their careers and making money and doing fine. And you know, they'd all like to eventually buy a place to live in and they can't, you know, yeah, it's and uh, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But, but, you know, what that shows is that houses are unrealistically overvalued and, um, and, or maybe my kid's labor is unrealistically undervalued. Yep. And so over time, you have to meet, you know, there'll other. be pressure, uh, there'll be pressure. Those wages will get higher and those housing prices will have to fall. Um, you know, so, because right now there's a lot of bid, a lot of that bid in those houses is, you know, the big private equity people who've gone out and tried to buy all the houses so they can rent them to people. But that, that'll change. Higher interest rates will fix that. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. Right, right now the housing market is very illiquid. Like houses basically yeah. new all-time high, but people yeah. do not want well, to sell the houses problem. because they got mortgage. Yeah, the rates are, yeah. yeah, the prices are high, but there's no transaction volume. And that's right, because yeah. of guys like me and other people who have 3% mortgages, they can't afford to move, right? Right, exactly. I mean, if I were to if I were to move and buy my house again, my my monthly payment would would more than double. So, <laughs> it's you know, and, and yeah, so it's you know, it, it's I mean, it's rather sad that it's just it's such a corrupt and broken system, um, and you know, I've seen other corrupt and broken systems, and and you know, as bad as it is, here's the good news: it's going to change. You know, things things are going to things are going to happen. It's it's going to. You know, it is so, it's self-correcting. It takes a little time, but it is self-correcting. It's going to change. So um, that's the good news. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah, it really just takes time. Yeah, you're right. Um, so moving back to gold, um, as you know, like sure. uh, QE started, I believe, what, 2008? And Fed yeah. sheet imploded from like 800 billion all the way to 8 trillion. So it basically, it made um, well, 8x within well, 14, 15 years, something like that. So that that basically going to be 15% annual compound rate, which is insane. So why do you think gold during that period of time uh, underperformed? Yeah, gold was only probably kind of 8% compounded over that period of time. So what they did, it's pretty interesting because I was involved in gold in the time and I was involved in the gold stocks at the time. So what they did with QE, um, I thought QE was going to be massively inflationary. And I was wrong about that. And I was wrong. It, well, I was right and I was wrong. It was massively inflationary with respect to financial assets because bonds went up a lot and stocks went up a lot. All the QE, it was an asset swap, right? I mean, when they, they were buying bonds and keeping rates artificially low at ZERP and allowing people to lever up and the people who could lever up were using it to buy stocks and bonds. The average guy couldn't get his hand on the money and couldn't use it to go chase goods and services. So there, were no, there was no good, in spite of the Fed balance sheet growing a great amount, and in spite of, you know, reasonable M2 growth, not excessive M2 growth, but reasonable M2 growth, you know, there wasn't that much recorded inflation. And of course, if we talked about that, you know, they underreported. So, so what, what they managed to do was kind of blow a bubble in financial assets that didn't really get into the inflationary part of day-to-day of -day living. And then when, when COVID happened, they, you know, they, they needed to, they, you know, and, and by the way, that bubble got very extended you know, in terms of the size of those assets against the underlying money supply. But then, and then, you know, the repo blowout happened in 18, 19, and, and then COVID happened, and they had to, um, they really had to respond aggressively and send money in checks and, 
um, grow the money supply 42%. I mean, they, they did a lot of things that were much more stimulative that didn't have the money going into financial assets. It went just right straight like heroin into the economy. And then that suddenly created a lot of inflation. So, so they managed to suppress gold in that first part of the, you know, the first part of the decade from 08 to kind of 2015 was the gold low of a thousand in 2011 gold was at $1,900. And, and that was, a, by the way, that had been a good run since 2000 gold was at 250 in 2000. So it went from 250 to 1900 over that period of time, kind of did its job. Um, but then, then it went from 1900 down to a thousand at the tail end of 2015. And, um, and since then it's gone back up to 1900. It's on the march up again. Um, but that first period, I mean, I got it wrong. A lot of us got it wrong. We thought QE would be inflationary. We were wrong in, in you know, good service and goods and services inflationary. We're totally wrong. It was financial assets inflationary. Um, but, but now what we're seeing is those financial assets, in my opinion, are collapsing. And a lot of the money that was in those financial assets is coming into the goods and services and, you know, M2 and velocity are going up. And so now we're going to see inflation in everything. Um, and, and my sense is that as that occurs, gold will return to, to playing the role, doing its, doing its job and playing the role that it plays uh, of protecting against inflation. I, I expect, I, I, I sincerely expect this next five years, the gold price could go to as high as $15,000 an ounce. It's a two, you know, it's at 2,000, just under 2,000 right now. I mean, in, in the prior gold runs, the one from 2000 to 2011, you know, it went up 7x. And then the one from 1971 to 1980, it went up 22x. I mean, it started at a low base because the $35 start price was suppressed as a result of, you know, the Bretton Woods agreements. But, but the point is that, you know, I don't think gold's just going to 2,500 or 3,000. I think it's going much higher. And an interesting statistic um, and we're so far away from the gold standard that you know, this is almost irrelevant, but it's interesting to understand how much money has been printed. Um, if you go back and look at the 71 numbers, you know, we were on the gold standard until August 15, 71, Nixon took us off it. And if you took it, the money supply at that point in time, and you divided it by the 261 million ounces of gold that the U.S. holds, you know, you came up with a reference price of $35 an ounce. So, you know, the dollar was supported by gold. If you did that same calculation today, you take the money supply today, you divide it by the 261 million ounces of gold the U.S. holds, gold would need to be at $80,000 an ounce today. <laughs> right. I mean, you laugh, but I mean, it's, it's correct. It, well, and what that shows you is how demonetized gold has become, and it shows you how much money, how much paper money we've printed. And so if we were to ever reset to gold, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the same area of price as we are at today. It would be much, much, much higher. So, yep, uh, there is also a theory that the main reason why I'm not too sure if this is correct or not, maybe you can uh, give you a few thoughts about this. Uh, that the main reason why gold uh, did not make like new all time high since the 2008 because uh, it's it, it has been suppressed by derivatives. What do you think about that? Oh, there's no doubt, there's absolutely yeah. no doubt. I mean, the the so and not not just not just since 2008, I mean, gold has always been suppressed. I mean, it is part of u.s national strategy and u.s financial strategy to not let gold interfere with the value of the dollar i mean if if the gold price really traded in a free market sense that would be very damaging and the u.s wouldn't be able to get away with spending the way it spends and having a luxury that it has of having a reserve currency so if you go to a site called gata gata.org um, there's some guys there bill murphy and, and chris powell who i really admire who've been documenting the the efforts at suppression that have occurred really since 1971, but um, you know more more 
uh, more aggressively more recently. And I mean, and look, the other side even admits it. I mean, Paul Volcker in his in his memoirs said, you know, one of the mistakes they made in the 80s was not suppressing the gold price more aggressively. Well, you know, really? I mean, that's, you know, they're just saying that they do it. I mean, we know they do it. So, so yes, I mean, you can see it. And I, I remember the attack on gold in 2013. I mean, there were, there were volumes moving through the futures exchanges that were so large that there's no way that any individual or investment fund could have could have uh, controlled that much gold, that this was the BIS and the central banks and the large banks and the U.S. government literally bombing the gold market, you know, at that point in time. So, um, you know, yeah, they, there's no doubt that it's been suppressed by derivatives, continues to be suppressed by derivatives. The, the difference now, and, and there, was some, there was a similar thing, by the way, back in the 60s, there's something called the London Gold Pool. If you Google it, you'll find it in the 60s. They you know, gold was, people were starting to spend too much. Same, it's kind of the same issues, Vietnam War, all that stuff. And people started to trust the dollar less and the price of gold was creeping up and all the central banks got together and they formed a pool to hold the gold price at the $35 Bretton Woods reference price. And eventually they had to abandon it because they couldn't. And why did they have to abandon it? Because people were asking for physical. So you can print paper gold. I can sell you a piece of paper that says you own an ounce of gold that I don't have. And you might accept that. But if, if there are enough people like you that say, you know what? I don't want that paper. Give me the give me the ounces. Well, then I got to go buy the ounces somewhere, and then that's going to push the price of those ounces up. And so um, my suspicion is that that's kind of what's going on right now. You, know, you can see it in the data. China is buying a ton of gold, both reported and we think unreported, because we get the records out of Switzerland and what's shipped to them. And so, in my sense is that China and Russia are they can see the monetary mischief that's taking place, and I believe they're making the bet. That um, that gold is going to be, you know, the anecdote to when these currencies, you know, inflate or hyperinflate, and and so they're they're kind of front running that by buying as much gold as they can. United States, I believe, uh, still has uh, the most gold in the world. Is that true or no? We do on paper. You know, we have eight million or eight thousand one hundred thirty-three tons, two hundred sixty-one million ounces. But you know, there's there's even debate about that, right? I mean, it. it um, and if you go to Gata, you you can read some of that. I mean, they. You know, the, um, the, the, our gold hasn't been audited, you know, since the 50s. So, I mean, we claim we have it at West Point, Fort Knox, you know, some vaults mm -hmm. in New York, etc. But, you know, okay, fine. And, and you know what the reasoning they, they use, the, the government uses this reasoning, it would be too expensive to audit it. I mean, think about that. You know, we spent $6 trillion, you know, fighting useless wars. But, I mean, I, you know, and I don't know what an audit would cost. I mean, probably an audit would cost a couple million bucks. But, you know, that's, that's about two seconds worth of, you know, expenses for our federal government. I mean, we could definitely afford to audit it. We just, they don't want to audit it. And I, and, you know, the obvious conspiracy theory or just, just a logical person would say, well, you know, if you don't want to audit, what have you got to hide? I mean, if it's there, then just let us see it. So, so there's, there's debate as to what, I mean, I'm, I, look, there's no doubt there's some of it there. Um, but, you know, is it all there? I don't know. I mean, it may, it may be, it may not be. I just don't know. I think prior to uh, 1971, when, uh, Nixon uh, took a, a dollar out of the gold standard. I think uh, United States had like well, like sixty percent of the entire world uh, gold supply. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Well, in, in, in the fifty, in the sixties, before that, in the fifties and sixties. I mean, there was a time when we had twenty thousand tons, twenty thousand tons. I mean, that's that's a huge amount. And back then, so there are two hundred thousand tons above ground in the world right now, but probably back in the fifties, there was probably only a hundred. You know, because it, the supply grows at one and a half to two percent a year, so every forty years it doubles. 
So, um, yeah, there was a time when we had so much gold, it was silly. I mean, that was post-World War II. And we also stole gold, or stored gold for foreign governments. I mean, there were foreign yeah. governments that were worried, like the French, for example, were worried that the Germans were going to, you know, overrun them and take their gold. They sent a lot of gold to New York for safekeeping, you know. And, and in fact, that's what triggered the whole Nixon break was the Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle sent boats over and said, give us our gold back. You know, yeah, thanks for these dollars, but we, we just as soon swap them in for gold. And, and when that, you know, when it became apparent that that was kind of going to drain the U.S. of gold, the U.S. said, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. we got to hang on to some of this. Take, take dollars instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That exchange thing we're talking about, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to, as, as Nixon said, I love it. He said, we were going to temporarily suspend <laughs> the exchangeability of the dollar for gold. Temporarily. It's been 52 yeah. years. <laughs> 1971. So how's that temporary part working out? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it will be temporarily in the like near future. If you yeah, look, possible. You yeah. look back with the hindsight, maybe a hundred years was like exactly. temporary. Yeah, it was only fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, Larry, let's move back. I mean, let's move on to uh, Bitcoin. So, why why Bitcoin? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, um, <laughs> so I'm a gold guy and a silver guy. I believe in them. The way I divide this sound money world up is I say gold and silver are analog sound money, and one of the greatest things is their final settlement. And they also have no ongoing cost. I mean, once, a, once an ounce is mined, it's turned into a coin. It just is. It sits there. You don't need any electricity to use it. Everyone can see it. You know, it's just obviously sound money. Okay, great. So I got into Bitcoin in 2013, 14 when I bought my first coins. Just oh, wow. a few. Yeah, yeah well. Uh, early adopter. Yeah, but, but not in a big way because my, and I'll tell you why. My concern was, you know, I, I'd been a technology investor my whole career. I was very familiar with computers. I was very familiar with the availability of computers and, you know, having IBM green screen. I mean, I was programming in DOS back in the early days. And, and as a result, you know, I just thought, how can you have reliable money based on a computer? Computers blow up, you know, and you, you unplug them, you reboot them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I didn't understand blockchain and I didn't understand hashing. I didn't understand difficulty. I mean, I, all the things that are part of Bitcoin were, were totally foreign to me, but I was intrigued. And so I started learning and, um, as, you know, from 2013 till today, my conviction went from, I'm, I'm pretty lowly, I'm, I'm going to buy a little of this in case it works. And I'm pretty lowly convicted that this can really turn into real money to I'm completely convinced that this is another form of sound money. The odds of technical failure are extremely low, like less than half of 1%. And Bitcoin really does kind of represent digital gold. And in many ways it's superior to gold because it's easier to store and transfer. The only negative is it has an ongoing energy cost to run the, the network, but I think it's small enough relative to the total value of the network that it won't be problematic. So, um, you know, it, it, to me, it's, um, it, it's a better form of gold. It, it, that, it, right now, the issuance rate of the two is about the same. As you're probably aware, in April, there'll be a halving, and so the issuance rate of the Bitcoin uh, reward will fall in half. At that point in time, gold on a stock-to-flow ratio, Bitcoin will be sounder money than gold. Um, and then the other piece of it, the equation that I think is important to focus on, I mean, people ask me what can go wrong with Bitcoin. I say, that, well, there are two things. One, if it technically blew up and, you know, you got to understand how it works and what it is and the core developers and the nodes, and there's a lot to learn. But once you learn all of how it works and you realize that we've mined over 800,000 blocks and it hasn't blown up, you, you, you know, you, you start to develop a level of confidence that, you know, this thing's probably not going to blow up. It looks pretty good. Um, so that's part one. Part two is it's got to be adopted. You know, I mean, money is just, as Carl Menger said, money is just the most liquid good, right? And so it's what everyone agrees on is money. I mean, you know, we only agree dollars are just a piece of paper with ink on them. 
we all agree that we know what they are, we know what they look like, we all agree they have value, and we exchange them. Um, the same is true of Bitcoin, right? It's, there are 21 million of them, um, you can verify them, you know what they are, you control them with a private key, etc. But if nobody gave a shit, it wouldn't be money. Um, so, so the other metric I watch is uh, adoption. You know, are, are more and more people using this shit? And, uh, and is the number, is the value of it going up? And the fact of the matter is, albeit very volatilely, the value going up, but it's going up. And probably more importantly, and I think a better metric to just watch, number of addresses, number of users, number of transactions, number of use cases, number of applications, those things are all growing very, very rapidly. And that combined you know, with, with the technical risk being lower in my mind now than it was in 2013, and with the use cases growing very consistently and rapidly, I'm quite convinced, you know, and with a limited supply, I mean, it'll be a while till we've mined all 21 million because it, it asymptotically we're approaching that number. But um, with a limited supply, I'm quite convinced that this is going to be the superior form of pristine collateral. You know, it's, it's going to be the best savings money we've ever had, uh, better than gold. Um, you know, which is not to say that I think the value of gold is going down because I think given the monetary debasement that's going on, gold's going to go up a lot. Bitcoin's going to go up even more. It's kind of the way I the way I see the two. Got it, uh, Larry. Um, so yeah, you you do own a uh, your partner the fund that uh, manages mining stocks, similar yep. to Peter Chief, but Peter Chief uh, basically <laughs> we know that he is being very bearish on Bitcoin. I mean, he's bullish on on a gold. Do you think there is a conflict of of interest with him, or do you think he's just being uh, disgenuous? You know, I, I just, I honestly, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of an enigma to me. It could be that he's just so wrapped up in gold and he's defending his book and he's defending his gold clients. Um, it could be, you know, he's a pretty arrogant guy in my opinion. Um, and nothing wrong with that, but he's pretty self-confident and, and not necessarily into having an open mind. And I think, you know, to accept Bitcoin as a form of money, you kind of have to be open-minded and curious. Um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure exactly where he's coming from to, to arrive at the conclusion he's arrived at. I mean, I, you know, in so many ways, he does correctly understand the monetary debasement issue and, and that that leads him to gold. He's right about that. Um, I, I think what he's missing um, is that maybe he hasn't taken the time to fully understand what Bitcoin is. I mean, the thing that is interesting, I mean, and, and you know, a lot of gold bugs get thrown off of Bitcoin because of all the noise around crypto. I mean, I'll say this, right? I mean, you know, the Sam Bankman frees and all the crypto frauds and the Celsiuses and the, you know, all the other shit that's gone down in crypto has really hurt Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot of fraudulent crypto crap out there. And, and, and that's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin's an entirely different thing. And my guess is that a guy like Schiff probably looked at all that and said, oh, I know what that is. That's just a bunch of promotional crap. And he's right. But what he didn't do is he didn't go to the next step, which is, but maybe I should study this Bitcoin thing more, more deeply because to me, you know, what, what Bitcoin really is, I think a lot of people miss this. It's not just a money, it's not just a technology, it's not just a profit-making scheme. It's an actual invention. And the invention is dig le legitimate digital scarcity. In other words, everything digital hasn't been scarce. You know, you can create a file, you can create a music file, you can create a word file, any kind of, you know, anything that's digital, you can copy it a million times, right? Yep. But the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin system solved that, they solved for that. They created these coins, which are controlled by a set of keys, which are limited and which cannot, they're immutable, they can't be changed. And that record is held by everybody. So everybody knows what everybody holds. You know, it's triple entry accounting. There's a third, third eye looking at it all. 
And, and that's, that's an invention. That's actually a technical invention, digital scarcity. And so I, I think it needs to be compared to like the Wright brothers airplane. You know, I mean, before there was an airplane, human beings couldn't fly through the sky. Well, now they can, you know, and before there was a printing press, you know, monks had to copy manuscripts, you know, so you only had X copies of the Bible because there was no printing press. Well, now you, now you can make lots of copies of the Bible. And so, you know, or before there were railroads, you know, you rode on horses. I mean, it's just, it's, <coughs> you know, and, and, and it's abstract. It's a little hard to understand something as abstract as digital scarcity as an invention, but it really is an invention. And I think that's, I think in the, in the fullness of time, it will come to be seen as that, that that's really, really important, inventing digital scarcity. Uh, what do you think uh, will be more, um, not valuable, what do you think is better at this time? Or what has better properties like Bitcoin or gold? Well, it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, um, I, you know, I think Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the monetary debasement race. And I'm stealing that from Paul Tudor Jones, who's a really fantastic investor, has been very successful. So I, I think Bitcoin will outperform gold. But if you're 80 years old and you're putting all your wealth into one area, which I would never advise anybody to do, um, you know, you're and you're looking for a sound money to put your money into, I would recommend gold over Bitcoin because gold never goes down 80% on a drawdown. And Bitcoin's had four of them. So, you know, you it's, I mean, to me, Bitcoin is, you know, Bitcoin is more your aggressive growth stock and gold is more your bond, you know, that, that, that will, you know, give you income and grow. And I mean, in, income in terms of increased value and protect your purchasing power, but it's not going to, you know, go wild to the upside unless we have a monetary reset. But in turn, you know, it's, it's been out there for so long. So many people hold it. It's so hard to produce, etc. that I mean, I think the biggest annual drawdown we've ever seen in gold was 30%. That was like one year. I think generally speaking, a big drawdown in gold is 15 or 20%. Um, you know, but think about it. If you're older and you've got a lot of money, you know, you don't want to have an 80% drawdown. You know, you've got $10 million and you buy Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes down 80%, which it has in the past, right? You've lost, you know, 80% of your capital. Well, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty devastating. So to me, you know, I'm a risk manager and I'm an investment manager. I've got a lot of older clients and, you know, we, what we do is we figure out what the right percentage of Bitcoin for them to have is. You know, so that if it goes down 80%, that doesn't change their lifestyle. And then, you know, we, we put the balance in gold and gold related things. So, um, so it's, it's kind of, you're kind of, you know, you say, which is better. You're kind of, it's kind of like one's an apple and one's an orange. Do you know what I mean? And they, they each have different characteristics. Well, I meant to say like, what is like better money? Not necessarily the price. Actual, oh, better money. Oh, Bitcoin's better money. Oh yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin technical Bitcoin's definitely better money because Look, I mean, it's verifiable, it's uh, easier to transfer, it's less cost, it's digital, we're going to a digital world. I mean, Bitcoin will ultimately replace gold, there's no doubt. Gold will just become a, a you know, an industrial and jewelry metal. Uh, but, 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 you know, it's interesting, I mean, all Bitcoiners think that's going to happen tomorrow. And um, it's not. <laughs> it's gonna, there's going to there's gonna be, a, in my opinion, it's not. It's, it's going to take time. Um, but again, Bitcoin will continue to outperform gold. So if you're a very aggressive investor and you can live with the potential drawdowns, I mean, if I were in my 30s, I'd advise on my kids. They've got some savings. I've said, put it all in Bitcoin. You know, you don't need any gold. Right. But, but uh, um, yeah, I think uh, go ahead. the way uh, Bitcoin is better just because Bitcoin is like digital and the uh, gold's physicality, it's itself like liability because 
you can yeah. basically hold gold in some vault, but you're not so sure if if your gold is there or not. Maybe they rehypothecated the gold, and the, well, that's right. No, yeah, that's but, exactly right. The verifiability right. of it all is just it's 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 a real mess, and there are all kinds of problems with gold. I mean, you know, there've been fake gold. I mean, tungsten is a metal that's very close to the atomic weight of gold, and so. You know, in China, they found a ton of gold bars that were basically tungsten plated with gold. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, and now there are ways to detect that. I mean, and in fact, there are there are gold dealers here where if you take them a kilo bar, they're going to saw it in half to protect against that risk. Now, there are machines mm -hmm. that will actually give you a surety that the thing is solid. But the point is that, yeah, gold's got a lot of problems. Um, on the other hand, you know, if the computers aren't working and, you know, you're you're looking to just do a cash exchange on the street, um you know, a gold coin is a gold coin. Most people know what it is. And, and you can take a gold coin into any country in the world and go to a coin shop and exchange it for the local currency. I mean, I've always said, you know, having gold is really good for bribing the border guards when you're trying to get out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah. So. And uh, going back to your previous uh, question, question where you answered that, like you compare uh, the price action Bitcoin versus gold. And you said that, um, what percentage do you recommend for your client to invest in Bitcoin, if any? Well, as I say, it depends a lot on the client, right? I mean, I have clients that have one or two percent. I have clients that have 50 percent. I mean, personally, I'm about half and half. Mm -hmm. I'm 66 years old, and that, that feels like kind of the right balance to me. I mean, look, if and by the way, what will happen there is if Bitcoin outperforms gold the way I think it will, eventually that half that's gold will become five or 10 percent. And I probably won't sell it. But, you know, I'll say this as I earn money these days, I don't use any of it to buy gold. I'm done buying gold. If I earn money, I buy Bitcoin. Um, right. My clients, it varies. I mean, I have people who have 1%. I mean, the only thing I really say quite strongly, I pound the table on it. I say, having zero is wrong. You've got to have some Bitcoin because we don't know what's going to happen to it, but it could go up 10x, 100x, 1,000x, 10,000x over 20 years. I think it might. And therefore, if you have zero, you don't get to participate in any of that. And, you know, there's, there isn't an investor in the world that can't live with a 1% loss. So, <laughs> hey, Mr. Investor in EMA, you know, you need to at least take 1% of your capital and put it into Bitcoin, at least. And I tend to try to push people to get to 10%. Um, and some people get much higher, and they should. But, you know, it's, I mean, and, and like I say, it doesn't, if it's as asymmetric as I think it is, it's not like you need to take 100% of your money and put it in Bitcoin. You don't. I would never recommend that. But but to have zero in Bitcoin, no, no, that's very bad, too. <laughs> you know, so I think for, you know, and I know a lot of 30 year olds that are 100 percent Bitcoin. That's fine. They can do that if they want. They're taking risks, but that's OK. They're young. They can recover. Um, you know, they've got a very long time frame. They've got earnings power. You know, as you get older and later in your life and you stop working less and your earnings power goes down, you, you know, preserving your assets becomes a bigger focus than growing your assets. You know, you might have enough assets and you, you know, what you want to do is not lose. Yep. You're not concerned with winning big, right? So. Yep. Uh, moving on more into Bitcoin, as you know, there's a lot of rumors that Bitcoin spot ETF could be approved, I don't know, by the end of yeah. this, this year or maybe Q1 of next year. Uh, what do you think is going on over there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the politics <laughs> of it all, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's Q1 next year. I'm guessing, I mean, I think there's a real battle going on. I think on the one side, you've got the fund guys like Fidelity and BlackRock who want these ETFs because they know they'll make a lot of fees off of them and they know that there's a ton of demand. And by the way, when they do get approved, it's going to be very positive for the Bitcoin price, in my view. 
Um, and I think on the other side, there's the, the traditional networking banking system. It's kind of like, oh, this stuff really threatens our game. We don't want this at all. And the Jamie Diamonds of the world are trying, probably applying enormous pressure on the SEC and senators and congressmen and others to try and prevent it from being approved. So I think you've got these competing forces, but my gut is that legally they're going to have to approve it. Um, I, I, I just can't see how in a free country they can't. Now, it's possible they won't, but I, I think they will. And I think, you know, BlackRock's got a lot of lobbyists, too, and a lot of power and a lot of money. So, you know, the banks probably don't want it to happen. The investment companies do want it to happen. I think eventually the investment companies will prevail and we will have a spot ETF. And as I say, you know, there's a ton of money out there. Michael Saylor does a nice job of pointing this out. There's a ton of money out there in buckets that cannot buy Bitcoin today because of the way those buckets are structured and the rules. Regulation. But if there were a Bitcoin ETF with a ticker, they'd say, oh, yeah, great. We'll put some of that in here. And, you know, it doesn't take much. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure these RIAs, you know, Registered Investment Advisors in the U.S. who control, I don't know, $20 billion worth of money. Or, no, I think it's bigger than that. I'm sorry. It's like $20 trillion worth of money. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of them are, are, you know, thinking to themselves, okay, well, clients are asking me about Bitcoin. I, I got to buy a little, you know, so... Well, do you think uh, how um, Bitcoin's spot ETF approval will affect uh, Bitcoin price? Do you think BTC will double or it will take time? It's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, so we're in, we're in, we've got two things coming up. We've got spot ETF approval and we've got a halving taking place in April. A lot of people have asked me my views on what will happen to the price. I mean, as you know, we're kind of breaking out of the, you know, well, we were at 15 at the bottom, the FTX bottom, we can, and the 20s, now we're in the 30s. I think right now we're creeping up over 37, 8. Um, you know, I, I fully expect that even before the halving, I'm kind of with Adam back. I think before the halving, we'll probably be at 100, you know, that we're going to kind of march from here to 100. And I, I think this next run with the approval and, and, and the halving taking place, it would not surprise me at all. I mean, uh, Max Kaiser thinks the top's at 220. I, I think the top could be three, four, five hundred 500 on this next run. Mm. Um, and, and then in turn, by the way, it'll correct, you know, just as it always does. But if you kind of look at the patterns of, of the multiples of the bases that it forms, I, I tend to believe that we're going to go substantially higher than where we are today. And that's probably in a 25-6 scenario. I mean, I'm not sure that happens in 2024. I, I would guess the average price in 2024 might be in the hundreds somewhere. But then it, 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 then it really starts to ramp higher as more and more people you know, get involved. Right. Um, so as you point out, yeah, we basically have like three main catalysts, as you point out, two of them is Bitcoin spot ETF approval and Bitcoin having that will be in April next year. And then yeah. at the end of April, we also have a uh, election. As I know that prior to election, like Fed uh, allowed to print money. So we have another catalyst, basically. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, that's that's the other thing that will really drive it. I mean, part of what suppressed it and it suppressed the price of gold is the, is, is the tough guy Fed. Right. In February of 2022, General Powell said, you know, we're, we're, we're taking these rates up and we're taking them up aggressively and we're going to totally kill this inflation. Well, you know, the impact of that on inflationary assets, which are driven by inflation and gold and Bitcoin are two of the most prominent ones or the most prominent ones, um, was, was very much a, a wet blanket. Um, you know, I, I think, but, you know, by, by mid to late next year, the U.S. economy would be in a much worse place. Uh, unemployment will be surging. Things will be slow. Maybe inflation won't have picked up. Maybe it will. I don't know. It's leave inflation out of the equation. I think people will be screaming that, you know, hey, these interest rates are killing us and we need to get this economy going again or everything's going to collapse. And and so QT will end. Um, they will have not they will not have increased interest rates above 5.25 and they will have started to cut them. 
And then ultimately they may have to resort to, resort to QE and yield curve control, wherein they're, they're starting to buy the bond market in order to keep interest rates down. So, you know, it's, and, and, and all of those actions will be rocket fuel for gold and Bitcoin, just rocket fuel. And so I could easily see gold in the 3000 range, tail end of 24, gold 3000, Bitcoin 100,000 plus easily, you know, with those, with those things coming together. Yep, totally agree with that. Um, so next, next question would be, what do you think about a Bitcoin versus other altcoins, if you have the opinion on that? I, yeah, so I'm, a, I'm a total maxi. I think, ETH, I think Ethereum's a fraud. Um, you know, they've changed their monetary policy half a dozen times. It's controlled by the guys at the top. I mean, it, to me, proof of work is the only means of having a sound cryptocurrency. And the only meaningful, there are a couple smaller ones, but the only meaningful proof of work coin is Bitcoin. And so I don't buy any other cryptos. I advise people to stay away from it. I think it's all fraud and bullshit. I, right. I do recognize that there are some um, applications being built on crypto that probably have some real world um, value. And I think what will happen is they will migrate to higher levels and use Bitcoin as the core. Because you know, if you don't start with a sound underlying token, you know, everything you're building is you're just building on sand. Yep. So, um, so that's how I see it. Ethereum kind of similar to current uh, U.S. monetary policies. U.S. constantly <laughs> manipulate the policy and Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. Do you think U.S. government can push like harder for Ethereum because they can actually control it? Uh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe I haven't looked at it. The one it, it seems to me like the one they're behind, and I, I don't I don't study or follow those areas very closely because I just I think they're they're nonsense. But the other one they're pushing for, I know the banks are pushing for is this XRP. Familiar yeah. with that one? You've heard of that yeah, one? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not so a fan I, of. Yeah, I'm not a fan of any of that stuff. I just think <laughs> it's all, you know. Well, and then of course the ultimate threat, or not threat, but just issue and the thing they've they've signaled quite loudly all around the world is the CBDC, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's quite clear that if, if they had their way, they'd love to steer us all away from Bitcoin and create a CBDC that they can control. And, you know, I mean, that would be really draconian that, you know, they could watch what we're doing and watch what we're spending and, you know, guide our social behavior and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's and, and there's no doubt that if they could pull it off, that's what they'd like to do. And they might do it, you know, in the sense that and some people might accept it in the sense that, you know, if you're poor and struggling, you know, somebody's going to give you something that's money that, that helps you to feed your family. Well, you'll you'll accept it. Do you know what I mean? Even if it's even if it's bad, you'll you'll accept it because you won't have any choice. Um, so you know that, and that's rather sad, but that that could occur. Um, but you know, anyway, that's that's a whole different whole different direction. I mean, I think even if they do that, Bitcoin will be parallel and be over on the side. And and those people who take the time to study it, I mean, I you know, if anyone were to decide they were going to do UBI using CBDCs and they gave me some CBDC money, I would instantly sell it and convert it into Bitcoin. <laughs> right. A lot of people uh, in mainstream media put in headlines that CBDC could be a threat to Bitcoin. But if you look at it, they totally different things. So yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's it just I mean, it's look, it's noise. And it, yeah. And there's some people who will accept it and like it. But it's not a threat. Those you know, anyone who knows what's going on here knows it's really it's, it's a totally different animal. No. Yep, hundred uh, percent. Larry, uh, last question would be: um, What like three top books would you recommend? 
Oh yeah, well there are a bunch of them. I tell, I get young people calling me all the time and ask me. So there's several books I think people really need to read in today's world. I think one of them is the Bitcoin Standard by Safe. I mean, I think if you haven't read that book, you just don't, you know, you don't understand the basics of Austrian economics, or you might not understand the basics of Austrian economics and so forth. Um, I think another one that's very important to kind of model what's going on in the world is, is The Fourth Turning by Howard Strauss, um, which is very good. And the one I just completed that I really, well, then a, a third one that I think is very highly good, is really good, is my friend of mine, Jeff Booth, is uh, The Price of Tomorrow, which describes kind of the deflationary future and how, you know, the system we've got is not designed to handle the deflation that technology is naturally bringing to us. And then I would say the final one, I just finished reading it not but a few months ago, but it's really an outstanding book, is Lynn Alden's book called Broken Money, um, which mm -hmm. is really fantastic. I mean, that's probably the book that we'll, when the government, you know, a few years down the road, when we're in a monetary crisis and the government's saying, holy shit, you know, we got inflation here, we don't know what to do, you know, good, good God, how are we going to solve this? That's the book that we should send to every congressman and senator and policymaker. And they should read that and say, because it will, it will clearly explain the issues and the problems, and it will also map out the solution. And, um, and, and so before we get to hyperinflation, I, I pray that these guys, you know, realize what's wrong and then take the steps to fix it. You know, that's, that's in my view, what, what prevents a really dark outcome from, you know, from taking place here. Um, and, and that, if there were one book I, I would recommend reading to address that, it would be Lynn's book, Broken Money. I'm going to read. I haven't read it yet. I read uh, Prices Tomorrow a few months ago, then I also had yeah, an interview with Jeff Booth. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, Larry, you want to read something really dystopian if you want to see I'll just say this because it's just it's a fascinating book um, you know there's a book called The Mandibles written the by Mandibles? a woman named Lionel Shriver yeah The Mandibles yeah mm -hmm. and she, she's a, a novelist she's a fiction writer but she's smart she must have Austrian training and she um, and she wrote this book and it describes the descent of America into hyperinflation in the 2030s and 2040s and it's, it follows a family and how it takes place. And like I say, it's kind of dark because it's not a pretty picture of how things unfold. But as you read it, you start to really understand that, oh my, you know, if, if, if we really do let a hyperinflation overwhelm this country, you know, it's, it's, not, going to be, it's not going to be a pretty sight. Yeah. And so I found myself reading it and thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So um, I will check it out. And lastly, Larry, where can people find you online? Yeah, so uh, um, I'm on Twitter under my name, Lawrence Lepard. Um, I make a lot of noise. I yell at the central banks. I'm, I'm, I'm angry at them. Um, I have a website. It's ema2.com, edwardmarkalpha2.com. I have quarterly newsletters. I, I also run a fund. If you don't mind, I'll make a shameless plug here because uh, we do have some openings now. I run a fund that invests in sound money, gold, silver, Bitcoin, and sound money companies. Um, and if, uh, if you meet the SEC standards for being accredited and have $100,000, you can invest in that fund. So uh, people should feel free to reach out. We, we don't always have open slots, but we do right now because some gold people gave up. So um, that's, uh, that's kind of how to find me. And um, happy to, you know, I'm, I've, I view my role in this whole thing as I'm an advocate for sound money. And I'm trying to help the gold people understand that Bitcoin is a, is, is, is a good alternative that they should own as well as gold. Yep, Larry. Uh, yes, I will leave all the links in the description box below. And Larry, thank you for your time and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Happy to come back anytime you like. Of course. Thank you.